Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books Network Seminar. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks very much for joining me here today. I just finished talking with Ken Wark about his new book, Molecular Red, Theory for the Anthropocene. This came out with Verso in 2015, and it's a book that I'm really excited to share with you, in part because it's so widely relevant and applicable um, and useful for thinking about and with so many different fields. This is really a book that transcends discipline and field, and this is one of the reasons that we're featuring it on the seminar. So what the book does is give us a way to think with and perhaps um, create a way to practice theory for, for and in the Anthropocene. And it does this by creating a conversation between two bodies of work, two kinds of work at least, um, that might not often be put into conversation with one another. The first uh, body of work occupies part one of the book, and this takes us into a Soviet context by looking very closely at the practices, the literature, the work, um, the fiction, and the nonfiction of Alexander Bogdanov and Andrei Platonov. Um, you'll see in this part of the book and in this part of the conversation very briefly the ways that Bogdanov's work kind of sets up some tools, um, perhaps some apparatus, to use a term that'll come up later, for thinking with um, and practicing what comes later. Now, this is articulated in the book with the second part of the book, which takes us into the world of science studies and of science fiction. And in the second part of the book, we look in detail at the work of Paul Feyerabend, of Donna Haraway, of Paul Edwards, of Karen Barad, and also the science fiction of Kim Stanley Robinson. So the book begins and ends in a way with Mars um, in two very different contexts, in two very different ways, and it also threads together um, the work and the ideas of these potentially very different kinds of authors, um, practitioners, into a way of thinking about and practicing, I think, intellectual and uh, scholarly and philosophical and theoretical and other kinds of tools um, for dealing with where we are now in the Anthropocene, where we might be as we move forward. It's also a really, really smooth, um, really pleasurable read. And so I highly recommend this, not just to people who are interested in and practitioners of science studies, not just to people who like science fiction, not just to people who want to read about the Soviet context, but really anyone who is interested in anything. Um, this is a book for you if you are a person who is interested in things. So with that, um, I will leave you to it and just thank you as ever for listening and for your support of the channel. I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Mackenzie Wark about his new book, Molecular Red. Welcome to the New Books Network seminar, Ken, and thanks very much for both writing a book that I think is of wide transdisciplinary, interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary interest, and also for making time to talk with me about it today. I'm really looking forward and welcome. Thank you, Carla. A pleasure. So let's start big. Uh, just to give listeners a, a sense of the context within which to situate this particular project, what are you typically writing about and working on when you're not writing works of theory for the Anthropocene? Well, I guess I, uh, I'm a scholar of media studies and, and of culture, and those are things that I've written about in the past. Uh, and I think I've always been interested in uh, how forms of scholarship can address issues that come from without, that aren't things generated by our own internal agendas, but are sort of thrown at us by the world. Uh, and it seemed more than high time to, to sort of address uh, a series of earth system phenomena that are uh, widely known as the Anthropocene, and to sort of think, well, you know, what in the, the sort of traditions that I know and work in uh, have we overlooked that might already be feeling their way towards something like that? Uh, so going back through the critical theory tradition that, that I know, it's like it was always off to the side. And so I sort of tried to find some people that I thought we could uh, construct as a, like a, a, a some sort of platform in the mud to, to stand on, to sort of think about this in the present. So the book um, that we're talking about today is in many ways, and we can talk about this perhaps in the conversation to come, practicing 
the kind of practice that it also celebrates and brings us into. And that is, it's very much breaking down boundaries and creating commonalities and conversations among works and individuals and ideas and practices that um, listeners may not have previously come into contact with as part of a common conversation. So the first part of the book takes us into a Russian literary context, a Soviet context, and the second part of the book takes us into California. So as in order to understand a little bit about the genesis of the project, but also of the book, right, as an object, can you talk a little bit about your choice to create these particular kinds of conversations? Why the Soviet and the Californian context as a way to create this object and create these kinds of conversations? I think one of the things that the Anthropocene puts on the agenda for uh, everybody, but including scholars in the humanities, is thinking at scale. So it's it's about big things. It's about large systems. And in you know the the history of the modern world, there are really two uh, extraordinary examples of uh, call them what you like. Maybe there are even civilizations that that thought at scale. And one was the United States or the free world or the West, and the other was the Soviet Union was its great rival. And the the Cold War narrative is sort of about one defeats the other. But the Cold War's over, so maybe there are other ways of thinking about uh, these two, you know, vast civilizations. And maybe the story is more that, you know, one of them failed and we have some good, you know, good clues about why and how it failed. Um, but the other is failing. And we don't really have ways of thinking about uh, the sort of decline and unraveling of, you know, call it what you like, you know, global capitalism, whatever it is. Uh, It kind of really can't go on chewing through resources at the speed with which it has. Uh, Some kind of qualitative phase change has to happen. So it struck me as as maybe useful to think about uh, a previous attempt at a qualitative change in a vast modern civilization that was the Soviet Union and that didn't work uh, to kind of figure out are there things we could learn about how to not do that another time around. And I think one of the things that comes out of the experience of reading the book, at least my experience as one reader, right, that's all I can really speak to, is that it also helps reframe um, perhaps how we understand what it is to not work, right? And maybe it can work now um, in different contexts, um, in different kinds of conversations in a really, I think, interesting way. And I think we can um, we can perhaps get to that. So the book opens, um, the preface opens with an epigraph from the Cyborg International. This is also how the book closes. Um, Workings of the world untie. You have a win to world, right? It brings us into um, a kind of introduction for the project. And I want to just kind of mention in the words of the book, a moment that um, perhaps can bring us into it and help us um, start opening up the book. The preface says, this is the end of prehistory. This moment when planetary constraints start really coming to bear on the ever-expanding universe of the commodification of everything. It's not the end of the world, but it is the end of prehistory. Okay, so as a historian, this is something that I was very interested in. Can you maybe start us off in our exploration of the book by talking about this idea of prehistory? What does it mean to say that this is the end of prehistory, and what's important for us to understand about that in order to launch into what comes kind of next in the book. One of the problems with trying to think about the Anthropocene is grappling with models of, of temporality. Uh, it, so are there, there are ways of sort of detaching it from uh, notions of apocalypse, for example, because uh, I, I don't find that terribly useful. Uh, so I thought, well, why not look at uh, the the sort of uh, uh, it's not a sophisticated it's more of a, a bog Hegelian way of understanding uh, a, a turning point uh, in time which for Hegel himself might have been French Revolution or more famously for Fukuyama uh, it's liberal democratic capitalism is the end of history or the end of prehistory if you like uh, and so what if we thought of uh, the kind of discovery of a world earth system constraint uh, on the ever-expanding horizons of modernity as the end of prehistory and how do we then start to rethink 
you know, what time is and how we're situated in time and that sort of thing. So that's sort of the opening conceit, if you like. So the book understands a central theme of the Anthropocene to be the story of what you call the Carbon Liberation Front. So I have to ask you this, right? What's the Carbon Liberation Front and and what's the importance of that for us to understand the project? Yeah, and it um, uh, it doesn't maybe rise much above the level of uh, a bad joke, but... (laughs) That's okay. I like that level. That's a good level to stay with. Yeah. You know, know, what really got liberated by modernity? Like, liberation is one of the great themes of of modern thought, right? Um, But what we really clearly succeeded in liberating more than anything else, and I I, I use we in inverted commas, is carbon. Um, We just liberated enormous quantities of the stuff, particularly those of us who live in Western industrialized uh, parts of this civilization. So what if we thought that the you know, the most successful liberation movement on the planet was the Carbon Liberation Front, uh, which is, you know, somehow extracting vast quantities of itself out of the lithosphere and putting it in the atmosphere. And But it's it's probably not a good liberation movement. It's it's kind of problematic for the rest of us. Uh, and, and by us, I kind of mean, you know, the biosphere. Um, so, yeah, what if what if we thought of a, a non-human actor as, as being the one that had really succeeded in that period? Now, the book also introduces um, uh, the Anthropocene as a series of, and this is inspired by Marx, metabolic rifts. Um, The book uh, in the uh, preface takes us into a way of understanding labor as it extracts molecular flows from the world, from rocks, from soil, from animals, from plants, but these flows don't return back from whence they came, and thus a metabolic rift. Now, I mentioned this idea of molecular flows, um, and the idea of molecular right, um, becomes really important throughout the book, and we'll get to this later as well. It's also in the title. Um, So let's talk a little bit about that just to orient listeners. Um, You talk early in the book about organizing assemblages in a molar mode versus a molecular mode. So when we talk about molecular modes here and and the importance of the molecular as it orients the study, um, what are we talking about? Can you talk a little bit about that for listeners? Yeah, and that one's maybe a bit uh, uh, inside baseball in the sense that the, the molar molecular comes from the, uh, the philosopher Gilles Deleuze and his collaborations with Felix Guattari. And, and, and it's, it's sort of thinking like very broadly the, the difference between you thinking about things that, that have bodies and identities versus things that are flows that traverse it. Uh, so that's, that's molar, you know, things that have big bodies and molecular, the, 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 the sort of in, infinitesimal flows through and, 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 and that bypass them. But, but for them, they, they talk about molecular metaphorically, and I wanted to take it completely literally. Uh, so it really is about flows of uh, carbon and phosphorus and nitrogen and the uh, compounds that they uh, find themselves in. So what if what if we took you know the molecular to be quite sort of literally something going on uh, that passes through Earth systems and human systems as well, and adopted that perspective. And I uh, I got a molecular lift, rift from John Bellamy Foster, uh, who in turn gets it from uh, Marx's Capital Volume Three, where Marx is sort of grappling with the soil science of the time and starting to think through this metaphor of uh, metabolism as being more than what happens in an individual body but happens in a whole sort of agricultural industrial system and from von Liebig he gets the idea of of a rift of you know well uh, you're extracting nitrogen and phosphorus from the soil and it's in the food and the people eat the food and and the people pee it down the drain in the city and it doesn't go back where it came from Uh, and therefore you need fertilizer and for fertilizer you need colonialism to go get it and if you can't get it then you can find uh, scientific ways of uh, replacing it and so on. Uh, But maybe that doesn't always go on forever and you end up with uh, rifts that just get wider and wider. Uh, And with uh, carbon, that really does seem to be the the situation. But maybe with some others. Uh, Some people talk about uh, peak phosphorus. I don't know if that's really true, that extractable phosphorus is in short supply. Um, But it's a question one would start to ask, yeah? Mm -hmm. 
Thank you so much. So once we have this um, kind of foundation uh, to build on, we move to part one of the book. This is Labor and Nature. And we're going to go through this at a fairly rapid clip, but I think it's important for us to touch on at least some of the um, notions and foundations that are going to animate the second part of the book. So chapter one of the book brings us into the work and the practices and the ideas of Alexander Bogdanov. Now, at one point, Bogdanov was Lenin's rival for leadership of the Bolsheviks, as you tell us here in this part of the book, but he goes on to develop um, what you call a radical practice of knowledge, and he does this by focusing on the importance of labor in Marx. You tell us that the central proposition of Bogdanov's thought is that our species being is as builders of worlds. Now, this is this motivates not just a way to understand the importance of labor, but also the uh, the nature of nature. Right? What is nature? Nature here is that which labor encounters. Okay, um, so he draws on the work of Ernst Mach, and I just mentioned that because we're going to come back to Ernst Mach when we come to the second part of the book. Um, and in part, he's uh, thinking about practices of knowledge um, in terms of sensation and the importance of sensation, and we'll come back to that as well. Okay, so that's all foundation, but it leads me into a question about one of the central um, notions and practices that you introduce through Bogdanov's work and in this part of the book, and that that's a practice called tectology. This is a way of thinking about and practicing how labor can organize knowledge. So to give listeners a sense of the nature and importance of this notion, um, Ken, can you talk a little bit about tectology? What do we need to understand about how you are conceptualizing that in order to understand the work of the rest of the book? Well, Bogdanov struck me as interesting as, as one of those uh, neglected figures. And, and if you think of the, the archive as being like a maze with all of these like hidden little corners, rather than being sort of like some great canonic succession of you have to you read this person, then you read this other person. So I'm, I'm always interested in those people off to the side a little bit. And he's one of those. There's certain worlds where he's well known, of course, but, but I think to the general reader, he's a bit of a, uh, a, a kind of minor figure. Uh, and uh, he was trained in the natural sciences. He was a, a physician uh, and very, very interested in what was going on in all of the sciences at his time. And he tried to keep abreast of that. Uh, and he wants a, a version of materialism that's adaptable to what the sciences throw at it, rather than a version of materialism that's just a sort of abstract philosophical concept. So for him, the, the thing that's really crucial is, is the labor of producing knowledge and the labor of producing the world. So so it's a it's it's a realism of the practice of producing knowledge, and the and, and the practice of producing the world. Like that would be the one way of defining the the kind of philosophy he's trying to produce. And uh, there are a few concepts that struck me as interesting. Uh, he ends up he borrows tectology, I think, from uh, Ernst Haeckel, uh, and for him it's. Uh, a way in which different kinds of knowledge can cooperate with each other. Uh, so how is it we can, in you know, doing one kind of labor or one kind of science or one kind of uh, humanitarian knowledge, you know, can we sort of produce a diagram or a concept or something that it, it might be useful in another field? So how do we get it from one field to another? Uh, and he thinks it's a two-part practice, and, and one is sort of extracting uh, some kind of diagram or metaphor from what one does in place A, being able to move it across to place B and then experimentally testing it there. So he thinks that we do this unconsciously all the time, that a lot of our uh, worldview is made up of just generalized things from our daily life or our labor practice that we unconsciously project onto the world. And he, he, what he wants is a conscious practice of where you do that, but you test it. You test whether it's really the case that things look like that when you start to produce knowledge in a different place. Mm-hmm. Now, how does the notion of the prolet cult come into play here? What is that and what's the significance of that in this context? So the the thing he's best known for is is Prolet Cult, which was uh, an organization that he found that actually just before the October Revolution, uh, and it sort of gets shut down by 
uh, Lenin in the early 20s. Uh, and the idea was that it would, would be a kind of uh, an alternative form of power to the party, the state, and the trade unions that would be the, the self-production of workers' culture. Uh, so uh, is, is there a way that uh, you could develop a culture out of uh, uh, the, the practices of labor itself? Like that was the, the sort of the grand ambition of it. Uh, and at its peak, it was a, a mass organization with uh, possibly hundreds of thousands of members. Uh, you know, the historiography on this is not complete, although there's a couple of good books on it. Uh, so, so for a moment, it was this sort of rival organization to uh, other forms of organization in the Soviet Union. And it, I think Bogdana thought that uh, you know, whatever the revolution was for Bogdanov, it was going to take an incredibly long time. And the main thing for him was the struggle between labor and nature. Uh, everything else was secondary. Uh, and the struggle between labor and nature is one you never win. It's, it's a question of continually uh, adapting. Uh, and is, is there a way that you could uh, better use uh, the resources of the world better organize in a kind of adaptive and flexible, uh, egalitarian and comradely way. That, that was his whole deal. That was his whole project. Great. Now, in a, if we follow a path through the rest of this chapter um, in a way that we won't talk about in any detail, but in a way that takes us into Hamlet, um, Shakespeare, right? It takes us into a really fascinating account of uh, Bogdanov's work with blood exchange. He actually dies, right, as a result of blood exchange with a student who had a form of tuberculosis. So that's a really, really interesting material part of the story. Um, the path leads us to Andrei Platonov. This is a prolet cult writer who actually as you describe here in the book, pulls off something of what Bogdanov suggested. Now, his work becomes important in so f uh, for lots of reasons, but insofar for us, um, at least in part, as it introduces um, the importance of the point of view of comrades to what's going on here. So what's going on with that? Why? Are, uh, in what way, or, or what do we need to know about Platonov and how he's bringing comrades and comradeship into the story before we move on? Well, for Bogdanov, the, the goal was uh, a way of organizing knowledge that's comradely. So it's not based on uh, authority or exchange. It's, it's based on some kind of sharing. And then comrade has a slightly different meaning in, in Platonov. He, he thinks we're only comrades when we face the same dangers. Uh, and so the, the implied critique of what had happened in the Soviet Union was that that was just clearly not true, that the, the uh, you know, danger fell very uh, unequally on different kinds of bodies. And he was uh, that rare thing, a, a genuine uh, proletarian modernist writer and one of the greats of that period, uh, but who, um, you know, was caught up in the Civil War and witnessed the famine and gave up writing for a while and retrained as an engineer uh, and got to see what was going on in the countryside in the Soviet Union from that point of view, where someone sent out not as a writer but as an engineer and starts writing a magnificent series of um, sort of, I think they're a kind of anti-literature that, that attempts to sort of sum up the experience of the struggle to produce at the base level uh, the, the, you know, the means of a new civilization and, and very early on, I think Platonov sees it not happening, not working. Uh, this is a famous book called Foundation Pit, and it's all about just digging a deeper and deeper pit for a, a, a building that will never happen over the top of it. So it's 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 this history in a tragic mode seen from below, uh, and it's you know he does he has many influences besides Bogdanov. I just wanted to emphasize that connection uh, because for Platonov it's it's all about labor's struggle with nature, but where nature is not providence. You know nature is not our friend. Nature is not uh, bounty. Uh, it's poverty. So the the poverty of the encounter uh, is just kind of a great theme in in Platonov, and it struck me as very contemporary. It struck me as what the experience of uh, life on the world is for most of us who don't live the kind of uh, lucky first world lives that we do. Like he's already writing for a planet of orphans, which is the planet we've produced. Mm -hmm. That's right. Now, Foundation Pit is one of several um, works that the chapter takes us into in really beautiful detail. It's a fascinating chapter. Um, and it also introduces one of the works that you talk about here, uh, Shavangor, as not just a historical novel, but also a kind of utopia. 
And this figure of the utopia is something that will follow through into part two of the book. So part two of the book takes us into California. It takes us from um, the Soviet context into the U.S. context, um, and it takes us into uh, the space of science and utopia, as it's called. The third chapter... Um, introduces us to this Californian context by introducing us to, you've pretty much hit on like a whole bunch of the people I just really like to read. So I was really thrilled by these <laughs> chapters. Um, I was super psyched about this. So you start by taking us into the work of Paul Feyerabend. Okay, so Paul Feyerabend um, is one of the philosophers who brought me into an interest in philosophy and philosophy of science in the first place. I totally dig him and I totally dug that you brought him into this book. So let's talk a little bit about Paul Feyerab and what makes for you his work um, as a, as you call him a Dadaist soul, what makes his work so interesting mm. in this context for you? Well, I, I should say there, I'm, uh, just as I'm no expert on Soviet literature, I'm no expert on Feyerab and either. And, but there are a couple of things that, that struck me as uh, really key to a, a kind of a turn in the study of science that, that he's identified with. Uh, and I, I concentrated less on the, the famous book Against Method and a little bit more on some things he'd said about Ernst Mach. And he, uh, I think, did a really brilliant job of, of sort of rescuing the reputation of Mach, who uh, is often thought of as like the guy who didn't believe in the atom and, and all this sort of thing. And uh, there are a lot of very unhelpful ways in which he's been presented. And he does a sort of very careful working through of, of what Mach was trying to do. And to show that, and the other thing is Mach is often seen as uh, where logical positivism came from. And it's true that that started out as the Mach society, but Mach himself was a different kind of practitioner. Uh, so he was uh, a physicist, but very much interested in the physical sciences uh, and in sensation, and sensation's a really key category. Uh, and Mach very much wanted to have done with the sort of overburden of a kind of massive metaphysics that tended to uh, surround the sciences and occasionally would generate metaphors that lead people to investigate things and actually find them, but very often also mislead people and, and remain a kind of, uh, you know, kind of fantasy that there could be a sort of theory of everything. Uh, so, you know, Feyerabend is, is kind of interested in that aspect of Mach that on the one hand sort of pars, you know, the, the sort of role of philosophy down to size in relation to science, but keeps it open as a kind of creative faculty, uh, as one that, you know, firstly limits the conceptual apparatus that we think sensation through. But on the other hand, there's that sort of little Dada-esque uh, capacity there to, you know, find the productive metaphor to sort of make the, the leap that's really not quite there in the results or whatever that's productive and that's creative. So so to me, Feyerabend's reading of Mark was really useful for demonstrating that uh, Bogdanov's reading of Mark also had some merit to it, you know, in, in the more or less century before. Uh, so it just struck me there's a little nexus there worth, worth investigating. Great. Now, one of the really interesting things that comes out of your treatment of Feyerabend's work here um, is he's kind of um, more than many other philosophers of science um, do, right? There are others who do, but not a whole lot. Um, he's reorienting us to look at what people actually do, right? What people actually experience, what people actually feel, what yeah. people actually, as an important um, and legitimate um, part of what we're doing when we do philosophy, right? As the, perhaps, um, important mm. part of what we're doing when we do philosophy. Um, and this is a sensibility in a form of practice that's shared with um, or that's shared by the next um, point in our itinerary here as we move through this chapter, and that's feminist science studies. Mm. So as you um, put it here in the book, feminist science studies shares with Bogdanov, um, in the words of the book, a commitment to studying the reality of the process of the production and reproduction of knowledge. So again, it gets us in the soil here, um, looking at and taking seriously what people actually do, right? Not this kind of formal projection of what we idealize um, as the doing of things or the thinking of things. So in encountering feminist science studies here, we encounter the work of not just Donna Haraway, but Cyborg Haraway as well. So let's start with Cyborg Haraway um, and then move to Donna Haraway. Um, what is Cyborg Haraway for you? Can you just basically briefly mm -hmm. talk about that and then we can move to um, Donna Haraway? Right. And 
to take a little step backwards to go forwards. So for for Bogdanov, what's crucial about Marx is it's all about the labor point of view. Uh, it, it's, you know, uh, for Bogdanov, that's the absolutely central thing. So Marxism isn't a philosophy. It's, it's you know, an orientation to the labor point of view. Uh, and so in, in the second half of the book, I've got a sort of slightly cheeky reading of um, Feyerabend and Haraway and others as sort of updating, you know, how do you think the labor point of view in the 21st century? Uh, and, you know, Cyborg Haraway uh, is is a way of uh, doing a couple of things, and and one is that uh, you know labor is kind of inhuman. It's always a mix of the human and the machinic. Uh, you, you know what what produces uh, the social means of, of subsistence is not people alone. It's it's a kind of cyborgian mix. Uh, so that's sort of one of the senses that I wanted to uh, to get out of it. And the other is that uh, Bogdanov, like astonishingly, says that. You know, Marx's capital is collaboratively written uh, by Marx and and the labor movement. And there's a sense in which that's actually sort of true when you look through the footnotes. Uh, And I was interested in the way that um, Bogdanov really wanted to create collaborative practices of knowing the world. Uh, And he had he attempted that uh, and was sort of shut down. Uh, But if there's anything that looks a little bit like what he tried to do in the current, uh, you know, sort of intellectual landscape, it was. Uh, history of Consciousness uh, in, in California, a program that uh, Don Haraway didn't start, but it is sort of famously one of the uh, central people in. Uh, and, and it struck me that um, she was part of a kind of really interesting network, you know, not just of people, but of practices of producing knowledges that could move between the humanities and the sciences um, in really interesting ways. And so I wanted to sort of make that the subject, in a sense, of the second half of the book. Great. In approach, in thinking about um, sort of Cyborg Haraway, it reminds me in a way of um, the really, I think, exciting work of another STS scholar, Hélène Mielet, who wrote this book about mm-hmm. Stephen Hawking like as a, an assemblage, basically, mm-hmm. Hawking Incorporated. So I think there's, um, there's some really, really, I think, generative, productive things about thinking in terms of assemblage and not in terms of um, just single authors, you know, being geniuses mm. and sitting at their desk that I think this is um, a big part of. So let's move to Haraway's work, right, as you engage it here. For you, and I'm going to keep this super open um, and just invite you to occupy this space in whatever way you'd like, what are some of the most important ways that Haraway's work helps create this conversation with that, uh, or with the work of Bogdanov? Like, what, what are these points of coming together that for you might most excitingly point the way forward and things that we can actually work with? I mean, Haraway is, is writing in such a different context mm-hmm. of, of, you know, the, the sort of hyper-developed California from the uh, 80s to the present. Uh, is is such a different context to what the Soviet Union was, uh, but you can ask in in a much more contemporary and sophisticated way, uh, you know, what's the, you know, who or what collaborates to make the world, uh, and Haraway enables you to say, uh, you know, both women and men, uh, racialized subjects, uh, not only humans but other species, uh, extraordinary collaborations uh, between the human and the the technical uh, and to ask at the same time questions about how power works through all of that uh, that there are you know sort of massive inequalities in how that apparatus has come to be so it struck me that it was possible to read that as as a kind of update on what uh, Bogdanov was doing and there's no direct connection uh, between them but uh, Haraway had read people who had read people who had read people who read Bo- Bo- uh, Bogdanov and Marx so it kind of makes sense and it's I, I don't really it doesn't matter to me if I can really show there's a strong genealogy connecting oh, them oh, of course. it's kind of like a yeah it's kind of like an echo it's, it's like people rediscovering the same problems but in a different language in a more contemporary language uh, and so it, it's and it struck me it was worth drawing uh, this uh, Marxist literature and Haraway back together that without 
gainsaying what's important about uh, the contribution of feminist science studies, like it's not an either or, that, that you can sort of thread those things back together a bit more. And actually, um, you just mentioned a term um, that leads us really nicely into what I wanted to ask you about next, the term apparatus, right? Um, mm. First, I, I just want to mark the fact that this is one of the ways and one of the moments in which I think the book does actually practice what it um, talks about, right? I don't want, don't want to say preaches because it's not you know really preaching, but um, in moving from a way of assuming that what it is to create a conversation among um, ideas and people and work is to identify a genealogy to something that looks more like um, creating a conversation through um, what you talk about when you talk in the next book or, or in the, the next section about Barad's work through diffraction, right? Mm. Um, this is very mm. much what the book is doing and it's also what the book in the next um, section is talking about doing. So I think it's actually really productive and important, not just for um, how the, your book contributes to um, science studies and well beyond, um, but also for how we think about this to um, move away from the assumption that uh, working from and with genealogy is the only way to have a conversation or necessarily the best or the most productive way. So diffraction. Um, so as we mm. move from Haraway onward, um, we move into the work of another um, scholar whose work I absolutely love. This is Karen Barad. So you introduce the importance of Barad's work in part by introducing, as I just mentioned, this idea of diffraction. You say she borrows this from Haraway, but then she kind of extends it. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because as I think I've, you know, hopefully made clear, I think that's a really important notion, not just for the, for what you're talking about here in the book, but also for the kind of work that the book is doing. Yeah, the, there's a way in which um, uh, theories of knowledge or epistemologies really tend to sort of get bogged down in uh, ideas of representation. And uh, uh, diffraction or refraction struck me as interesting in the sense that uh, to think about sort of indirect or uh, indexical ways of that. Um, knowledges of the world can be produced, that we don't always have representations of, of the world, uh, that sensation can be very indirect in that sense, and that often what produces and sort of stabilizes that knowledge of the world is an apparatus that, you know, there's, uh, to get away from thinking it's about the relationship of a subject to an object, there's, there's a thing in the middle, and the thing in the middle is always apparatus. Uh, so how do you have a, a kind of labor and apparatus-centered model of how knowledge is produced, where knowledge is then labor. It's just another form of labor, a specialized kind with particular rules and procedures. And Brad, and she does a whole reading of Niels Bohr that's also, again, way beyond my competence, I have to say up front, uh, but not beyond, beyond hers, uh, that, that shows how Bohr is, is making apparatus a central category. Uh, and she sort of says, well, you could sort of expand that a little bit. He sort of thinks really just the the apparatus on the bench in the lab, but you can then think about the lab as apparatus, the infrastructure that it runs on and so forth. And particularly when you get to climate science, and the next bit uh, is another person in the orbit of Haraway, which is Paul Edwards. Um, the thing about climate science, you, you're really looking at a global apparatus that's made up of uh, protocols of scientific collaboration that you know, it took a century to produce and satellites and computation and uh, fluid dynamics and like getting all these things to come together to produce a knowledge. Uh, so that's where apparatus gets very much away from the the the, the bench and, and out into the world. Uh, and it struck me that uh, if, if you sort of thought through from a couple of selected things in Farabend and quite a fair bit of Haraway and through Barad and then to Edwards, uh, that you had a sort of a line of things that orients you towards thinking about science as a labor that produces knowledge with and by apparatus. That's great. Thank you so much. And the and diffraction is actually part of that, right? I mean, I think there's um, there's a really beautiful moment in the book on 154, just to mention this for listeners who hopefully will get their own copies and they can look at this, um, that talks about the kind of meeting of fields, right? The meeting of maybe forms of knowledge, maybe ways of understanding the world. Now this is, I'm just kind of embellishing this, um, as a, a meeting of waves, right? Of diffraction patterns. And you talk about um, Lefebvre, 
um, in his work, um, Henri Lefebvre, the Marxist philosopher, um, talking about sort of swimming and then swimming through waves and finding a rhythm. And I think that's just a really beautiful way of thinking about what it is to make, um, you know, to make... uh, to create a conversation basically and make fields or make people's work speak mm-hmm. to each other in a way that moves us away from having to, again, rely on genealogy. Um, so that, that idea of swimming through the waves, I think is one that's um, really going to stick with me. So you mentioned the work of Paul Edward, or did you want to jump in? Yeah, I was just going to say that it, this is also in, in Haraway as a sense of uh, a practice of knowledge as a kind of a gift of images and metaphors for how to think about knowledge in the world, where it doesn't matter if the gift is accepted. And, and, and it's not a, it's not an authoritarian gesture on the part of a, a philosopher of like, I have the concept that explains everything. It's more, here's, here's an image or a story or a, uh, a metaphor that might work and might connect us. Uh, and, you know, like all gifts, it kind of doesn't matter if it's returned or not. Mm-hmm. I love that. Thank you. So you've briefly mentioned the work of Paul Edwards. Um, Paul Edwards was one of Haraway's students, as you mentioned in the book, and you take us into his work in the book A Vast Machine, right? And the notion of a kind of, as you've, I think, already talked a little about, a notion of a knowledge infrastructure. Um, and uh, the, it's important for understanding climate science. Now, one of the things that comes out of this that I think is really important um, for how we understand and practice um, STS, for example, but also um, practice a kind of theory in that context, is the way that his work and your your use of his work is understanding um, climate science as it requires a media theory, and specifically is understanding the relationship between data and models, right? So here, one of the things that comes out that I think is really important, um, many of us in a very flat-footed way understand the movement from data to models um, as kind of data are out there, and then we use we create models to fit them. And one of the things you're showing here is that they really co-produce each other, right? And you talk about this um, as an important part of... Uh, kind of the overall discussion of the of labor and the production of knowledge. So I would just invite you to talk, um, to say a little bit more, if you'd like, about Paul Edwards' work, um, what he's doing in terms of studying the means of production, right, of data in climate science, and maybe um, how that articulates with these larger ideas of labor that are animating the book. Yeah, and of course, uh, uh, Paul Edward spent years writing this really quite magisterial uh, and empirically and conceptually rich history of, of climate science. And I just read it and then, you know, like just said a couple of things about it. So it's, it's really, it's all Paul in that sense. Uh, although whether he'd agree, he would agree entirely with how I read it, it's another story. But um, he does uh, offer this very interesting uh, proposition that, uh, one of the things that makes climate science problematic for politics and publics is that it's a simulationist science. Uh, so it's it's about models, uh, and it's about models based in computation, and where uh, because the model runs on uh, you know essentially on on the physics of fluid dynamics, uh, you can use the model to correct the data, right? And the thing about collecting data in climate science is that it's all based on weather data, uh, which can be highly inaccurate. And uh, there's no way to know that, right? Uh, How can you have uh, a weather station collect temperature data in the same place uh, for 100 years when the place itself changes or where somebody changed the thermometer and didn't calibrate the old one to the new one? Like all of these things become uh, issues in the data sets uh, on which uh, uh, the models are partly built, which then the models then respond to and react to. So we get all sorts of eruptions of, of crises about this. And I remember one happened in Australia. I'm not going to get the facts entirely right, but it had to do with uh, – it's, it's an anecdote, right? So it's, it's climate scientists are, uh, uh, are throwing out a couple of super high temperature readings from the 19th century somewhere. Uh, and uh, climate denialists are sort of, you know, jumping up and down like, look, it's not real science. They they sneakily took these results out. But, but it seems that the 
the results are aberrant. They're probably unshielded thermometers or something. They're, they're not representative. Uh, and in any case, if you put them back in, it doesn't change the overall results all that much, right? So it's, it's not actually not much hinges on it. So I think there was something really useful in Edwards showing the, the nature of the science and the nature of the truth claim it makes as being kind of distinctive, that there is, there's something to it being, uh, uh, you know, and, and it's ironic for those of us raised on uh, Jean Baudrillard that here it's the simulation is the thing that's absolutely true, right? And and the 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 actual Earth climate is an approximation of the model is is how you have to kind of think it in a way. Uh, but where you know the 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 as with any science, there's differences of view within this overwhelming consensus about you know what the trajectory is and what putting this much carbon in the air actually results in. So I thought Edwards was was really kind of key in in sort of showing, uh, you know, ironically that that this really quite vast technical apparatus that is modernity uh, ends up also then producing a science based on uh, a vast apparatus, a vast machine, as his title has it, that shows why it can't go on, which shows why that very practice uh, is something that has to be modified in some significant way now. So as we move from here to the last body chapter of the book, we move into a chapter that we could, I mean, as any of the chapters, but really here, we could talk about this for another hour, right? This is a chapter that looks very um, carefully and very spiritedly at Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars Trilogy. Okay. So um, I'm not going to ask you to summarize what's going on. Um, I will just say, like, at this point um, in the interview, if listeners want to press pause and go read the Mars trilogy, it's amazing. Everyone should read it and then come back or listen to the rest of this, but definitely put this on your to read list if you haven't already read it. Listeners should just read the Mars trilogy. Okay. So in this chapter, you take us through Red Mars, Green Mars, and Blue Mars as a way to kind of tie together um, and extend this conversation that we've been having, um, certainly in our conversation today, but also insofar as the book creates a conversation that goes all the way back to Bogdanov. So I'm going to keep this fairly open. Ken, for you at this moment right now, what are some of the most exciting ways that the Mars Trilogy helps us understand the potential of the ideas that we've been talking about um, in the book so far? Or sort of put another way, put more simply, in what ways is the Mars Trilogy a work about technology and in what ways does that matter moving forward? Mm. Well, uh, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson or, or uh, Stan, as, as he's known, uh, I think gets it even better in a later book called uh, 2312. Oh, that was awesome. Uh, yeah, which is, uh, yeah. I, I got it just as I was finishing writing this book. Uh, and there's a more recent one, I think, called Sirius, that's a slightly more pessimistic, you know, sort of meditation on the same thing. Uh, it, it struck me that. Uh, and this is, again, a, a thing that both Bogdanov and Haraway have in common, is that interest in uh, science and science fiction together uh, and the way that uh, science fiction can have a few different functions. Uh, there's certain flavors of science fiction that people in the sciences themselves read or can be encouraged to read, um, which is kind of interesting because they're you know, there are characters in it and that kind of thing. Uh, so that's useful. Uh, it's ways of thinking through problems through some sort of displacement. So, you know, uh, Stan's uh, Mars books, they're among other things already about the Anthropocene, even though he wrote them before that was even a, a thing or even a word. You know, uh, it's just it's another planet you have to try to think through all of the systems of. So there's there's a way in which science fiction is useful in that sense. You get this sort of slightly displaced object where where the real object that's a little too tough or too present to think about, you think about it through a, a kind of a displaced one. And there's also a way in which it, it sort of plays out, you know, semi-realistic possibilities. You know, um, could 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 you know social and natural organization be different to the one we have? Uh, and, and that, again, is something that I think these books are really terrific for. You know, what are ways of organizing uh, scientific knowledge, uh, cultural knowledge and labor together? I think that's Stan's great theme. It's like how do all of those things fit together and how could they fit together otherwise? Uh, so the, the Mars books are an incredibly rich source for, for thinking about that. Mm-hmm. 
Now, you talk about reading um, his work, especially Blue Mars, when you talk about that, as off- as an offering of a kind of meta-utopia. So utopia, mm-hmm. right? I mean, this is a theme and a figure that threads through the entire book, and we haven't, um, I think, talked about that too much yet. So as a way of bringing that into the conversation before we move to the conclusion, how does his work um, offer a kind of meta-utopia? What's a meta-utopia? Mm-hmm. And can you talk about the importance for you um, of utopia and thinking with and about utopia for the project of the book as a whole? Yeah, I have a slightly unusual take on on what utopias are. Uh, like they're often thought of as either airy fairy and practical things, uh, or as or as some really terrible thing that the totalitarian states were based on. Uh, but I think, it, particularly in relation to the the well, in relation to the second of those points, uh, the the great utopias are all written after, not before. Uh, you know, moments of social terror. Uh, and in relation to the first point. Uh, I think utopias all came true. Like, they all actually happened, just with certain little details, you know, modified. So they turned out to be an incredibly realistic kind of genre. You know, if you read um, Charles Fourier, who's the, the most poetic of the of the utopians, but compare him to the novels of the era, he's much, much more realistic. He's the only one who asks who takes out the trash. No one else even asked that question. Like, like the novel's this fantasy world where food just arrives and, like, no one... <laughs> cleans out the outhouse that's just a, it's just a fantasy whereas Fourier asks real questions about those things you know so that, that's my sort of counterintuitive take on on utopia um so I, so I think it's a, a lively useful interesting kind of space but uh, what makes what stan does with the mars books a little different is it's kind of meta-utopia because it's about all of them at once uh and you know the the thing is he tries to sort of think through is there something from all of the kind of utopian traditions and literatures and how would they relate to each other if they all got a chance to be next door to each other how would they work that out you know he even wrote a constitution for mars that's it's not actually in the mars trilogy it's often another collection of his to sort of answer that sort of question so there's this kind of really quite uh on the one hand quite practical questions in the utopian tradition as well as a kind of poetics and openness to possibility uh but understand that that possibility is always to do with real world things like he's interested in how you know the the physics is at least notionally real the, the biology is at least notionally real like there's there's no magic involved right uh it's all about things that, that could plausibly happen uh, so that that struck me as a, a useful way of of getting us out of, of habits of thought. So to go right back to the beginning, if, if we tend to think the world is just basically an extension of our own little habits, uh, then maybe we're misled into thinking what the world is. And maybe there are literatures that get us out of those habits and see it structured from other people's habits. And that at least would give us some, you know, meta perspective on how the world could be otherwise and how the world could be habitable and endurable. Great. Thank you. Now, in part of what you just said, you mentioned um, something about the significance of practice, right? The importance of practice. This is something, again, that comes through um, throughout the book. And it's also something um, that becomes really interesting when we move to the conclusion, right? Which I think reiterates um, in indirect and direct ways the importance of practice um, for what we're doing here. Now, you talk in the conclusion, early on in the conclusion, about your own experience working in the region party headquarters of the Communist Party of Australia. So just in terms of thinking about how to bring this whole um, conversation and the book together, why was it important for you to conclude there, right? Like, why is that space? Or can you talk a little bit about your decision to bring us into that space as a way to bring the book together um, and the project together and move it forward? It's it's partly uh, uh, a kind of um, a debt to my early teachers. Uh, my first teachers were in the party. That party was a very strange outfit, but it broke with Moscow in '68. So it's so it's kind of like not what people imagine. It's a little hard to explain to Americans what this could possibly ever have been. Uh, but you know, I, I met people who you know they were former steelworkers and and uh, merchant seamen and uh, things like that, and and uh, they thought out of those practices to, you know, what a, an ideal world could be. And, you know, I sort of really, uh, for all their faults, I, I still sort of uh, love them for that. You know, not many of them are still living, though. You know, I was young, they were, they were older. Uh, and it was also, 
you know, you know, Marxist theory comes from practice, right? But um, particularly in the United States, people who've read Marx read him in graduate school, and I think have a very different understanding of of those texts than the one I got from people who uh, whose experience of it was very much about you know sort of shop floor organizing and things like that. So I was sort of just paying homage to to where I learned those things, uh, and and trying to you know sort of shed some of the the baggage of that past, but retaining that one bit of, of are there ways that people's labor can cooperatively be combined uh, to make a world we could continue to inhabit? Like that, that strikes me as a, uh, a larger goal that people of many different beliefs and ideologies could probably see some merit in. That's right. And in fact, uh, the penultimate sentence in the book, right before the reiteration of the epigraph that um, started uh, the book, is we all know this civilization can't last. Let's make another, right? The sort of call to collectivity. Now, the the last thing I want to ask you um, a little bit about uh, takes off or picks up the thread of something that you just mentioned, right? The, the importance of understanding this in the context of Marxisms, perhaps, right? If not Marxism. And the story takes place, as you tell us here in the conclusion, um, within the archives of mutating Marxisms, but involves a series of reversals of perspective. And you take us through these from bourgeois to proletarian, from schism to system, from molar to molecular. We've talked about that from high theory to low theory, superstructure to base, genteel to vulgar. And there's one more as well. Now, you also tell us here in the conclusion or remind us that labor, in the words of the book, is the mingling of many things, most of them not human. And one of these reversals is from human to inhuman. So perhaps um, as a way to kind of bring this together, you didn't say from human to non-human. This is human to inhuman. What's the difference um, and what's the significance of that difference? Yeah, uh, there's, there's a way in which the... Uh, conclusion maybe addresses a smaller audience than the rest of the book does because it's maybe of not everybody's concern what the internal uh, you know sort of struggles in how we might think what the the history of Marxism is and what we can do with it and then the relationship between these three terms uh, human, inhuman, non-human is is partly a way of thinking through you know I think Haraway and Barad and all that are interesting because it's about this this middle term the inhuman Uh, and it was useful for me as a way to sort of fend off uh, the appeal of what's sometimes called speculative realism or object-oriented ontology, which wants to sort of leap directly into the non-human. Uh, so, it's, so it's things that are utterly alien and foreign and don't involve the, the mixing of human with the non-human. Uh, and, but, I, but which to me always ends up being somewhat contemplative and poetic and, and makes sort of somewhat grand claims for what one can do purely on the basis of theory. So it's it's why I sort of settle on the inhuman as this immediate immediate space, mediating space. That's is the space where you know uh, where things mix and mingle, where where practices you know sort of forge things together, and that's the only thing I think we can take to be real is is our practice of encounter with the world. Great, that's kind of a perfect um, note I think to to end on and to draw this to a conclusion. So Ken, there's a million billion things we didn't have a chance to talk about. Their book is extraordinarily <laughs> rich, right? And there's so much um, that we didn't have time to address. But given that, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for our listeners? No, I think only that um, um, that book, like some others, are, are really about my own students in a sense that, you know, it, it comes out of uh, questions they have and literatures I've tried to find for them and where the context of the new school where we're, we're a social science school and also a design school then sort of plays into it so it's thinking in between those those two categories of practice uh, is what the book ended up being very much about. Great. So now that the book is out and congratulations um, on I, I think what's a fantastic book at least from my perspective what's next oh, thank for you? you. <laughs> what are you currently um, working on? What are you inspired by now? 
Uh, I have a, a book coming out that's that's kind of different. Um, and it's called General Intellects, and it's it's sort of maybe doing uh, it, it does come out of Bogdanov in a sense of, of trying to think about like there's there's no great public intellectual anymore. Like you can't look to Jean Paul Sartre to have all the answers to your questions anymore. Uh, you know, like you need at least twenty people of of whom at least half have to not be men, right? <laughs> to to sort of ask ask questions and 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 have to not all be from Paris uh, to ask questions. And but but they don't. You know, how do you fit them together? Uh, and again, it's, it was a thing that I. I did working with students is like, well, you need to know some political theory, but you also need some uh, science studies and you also need to know about culture. And so how do you work those things together? And so it's, uh, it's a reading of 20, you know, sort of prominent, what I call general intellects rather than public intellectuals. But the thing I, I'd really love to get done is um, a, a book that would be about the middle in between the two halves of Molecular Red. Uh, and it's um, I want to resurrect the uh, British Marxist scientists of the 1930s, which is uh, J.D. Bernal, Joseph Needham, mm. uh, and J.B.S. Haldane. But I want to put them in the context of uh, certain very important women who are around them but, but end up in different stories. Uh, so Haldane's sister, uh, Naomi Mitchison, um, Haldane's wife, Charlotte Haldane, or rather I should say he was her husband, uh, who kind of invented science journalism, but no one, you know, tells that story. Uh, so, you know, I, I wanted to sort of rethink uh, that moment of the 1930s when it, it seemed like there was a global emergency. Uh, it, it seemed like we needed to be able to mobilize all sorts of resources. It seemed like we needed to defeat fascism. Maybe we have to do that again. Uh, so I, I'm interested in these these flawed characters who made a hell of a lot of mistakes, um, but who were uh, either first-rate scientists or very interesting uh, writers uh, who who was sort of part of that struggle, and, and to me that's sort of the missing part between the two halves of, of Molecular Red, um, and it's got a lot of diffraction in it because uh, Bernal was an X-ray crystallographer, which is all about diffraction, uh, so I sort of get to play with that a bit more. So I'm hoping if I can get a little time, I can sort of thread that story, and and parts of that story are well known, but I think that version of it of putting those things together has, has sort of not really quite come out. Uh, so hopefully I'll get to I'll get to do that. So as someone whose day job is in the history of Chinese science, mention Needham and this is music to my ears and like oh my gosh the women who constellated around him. Please write that book. Please universe um, give Ken time to write that book and um, so that I can read that book because that is also a fabulous project. So thank you um, so much for taking time away from that um, to talk with me about this book. It's really been a pleasure and again congratulations on great work. Oh, thank you, Carla. It's a a pleasure. You've been listening to the New Books Network seminar. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.